All right. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is DJ Broca with another episode of Pills. Today I'm excited to have a guest joining me over the phone. Uh, I'll be talking to Dr. David Schechter, who's taken time off his busy schedule to come and talk to us about chronic pain. Hi, Dr. Schechter. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm pleased to be here. So tell us, um, can you introduce yourself and what field you work in? Sure. Um, my name is David Schechter, and uh, I'm board certified in uh, family medicine, sports medicine, and I have a credential in pain management. Uh, an area of my practice that I find especially satisfying is working with chronic pain patients who are interested and willing to look at the problem in a more complex way than is usually done. I see. So we'll definitely get more into this topic of chronic pain. In fact, we'll spend most of our time there. Can you tell us a little bit, since you are board certified in multiple disciplines, kind of what is the range of patients who walks through the door at your clinic? Well, I see patients with uh, injuries, uh, acute injuries, ankle, knee, shoulder, tendinitis, you know, sports, sports problems. Right. I see general medicine patients who are there for physicals, blood pressure, uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, sometimes just an ear infection or something like that. Oh, and wow. then I see people with chronic pain, people who have pain for typically for more than six months or a year, often for many years, and they're looking for a solution. Sometimes they're looking for an alternative to what they've been trying so far. I see. And so I assume some of your patients, like the people with ear infection, you might be the first doctor they're seeing. Oh, yes. I do some primary care work with uh, people who are just looking for help with their health. And right. some of them have gotten to know me over many years, and I've gotten to know them over many years as their primary care physician. Main physician, yeah. And uh, that also helps me in understanding them better, which relates a little bit to the chronic pain work, uh, maybe with a separate population, but helps right. me to, I get to know people as more than just uh, a number on the chart. Sure, sure. You are the main physician to them. Where is your practice? I practice in Beverly Hills and in Culver City, California. I see. And uh, how long have you been practicing in this area? I've been in Los Angeles for over 25 years. I attended Princeton University as an undergraduate in NYU Med School and decided to do my residency on the West Coast and applied to and was accepted to the UCLA Santa Monica Hospital Family Medicine Residency Program. Quite a big change for me from East Coast to West right. Coast, but I uh, gradually adapted <laughs> and liked it and stayed out here. And right after residency, did some urgent care work. Uh -huh. I got a lot of exposure to all kinds of injuries, uh, not just sports-related, but other types of things. I also started teaching at a residency program part-time, initially as a volunteer and then as a paid faculty through mm -hmm. the USC uh, California Medical Center uh, program. Uh -huh. And uh, my teaching... Uh, tended to focus in the musculoskeletal and sports medicine as well as uh, just the general family medicine. The director of the program asked me to uh, choose one of the areas of the curriculum to sort of be in charge of, and I said I'm very interested in sports medicine. And as a result of that, I spent the next several years as a uh, team physician for high school football, uh, doctor at LA Marathon, many LA marathons and other running races, um, was involved with um, Olympic trials and other sporting events, brought the residents to many of these events as well, and uh, this enabled me to sit for the sports medicine boards uh, some years later. Right. I see. So you've, you've definitely um, had a long tenure here in L.A. and been, you've been a part of U UCLA, you said, and USC as well? Yeah, I guess so I've like... switched back and forth a little right, bit. Right, right. Now I'm in private practice, and I'm on the medical staff at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, which is a UCLA affiliate, but it's uh -huh. uh, one of the largest... Uh, private teaching hospitals in the country. I see. And this, uh, this aspect of sports medicine that I guess you were interested in, um, since you decided to focus on that, um, is a very collaborative field, right? I mean, I, I helped out at a marathon recently, and I saw that there were um, PMNR, so um, rehabilitation people, there were chiropractors, there were um, rehab, so all sorts of people kind of coming together to address these uh, uh, injuries and uh, health concerns? Well, sports medicine is, is definitely multidisciplinary, both on the medical side, MD, different specialties, but also 
with regard to, as you mentioned, podiatrists, chiropractors, physical therapists, athletic trainers, all of them play an important role, registered nurses, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's definitely a multidisciplinary field, and I've always felt comfortable in uh, environments where we could put together a team and, you know, help the patient with uh, their needs, each of us providing what we do best. Right. Um, I happen to like being the coach or captain of that team, but not, <laughs> I'm not always, and uh, but it's uh, it's just good collaborating with with people and getting their perspectives and learning from them as as they learn from you. Sure. So you have this aspect uh, where you're doing sports medicine. Um, I I imagine the patients who come to you with chronic pain is quite a different population, though. Could you elaborate more on who comes to you with uh, issues of chronic pain? I would say that there are a couple of different groups of people come to me with issues of chronic pain. Uh, one would be people who come to me uh, just in my practice or uh, not knowing really about the mind-body work that I do, and they're just looking for a physician who can treat or prescribe or inject or just try to help them with their pain in some way. And sometimes they end up falling into this category that we're going to talk about a little bit more, this very fascinating approach to using the mind and brain to heal the body. And the other group of people would be people who uh, have learned about my work from patients sometimes from doctors, physical therapists, chiropractors, psychologists, uh, the Internet, mm-hmm. my website and other websites Your um, book. on the subject of uh, you know, the tension myoneural syndrome mm-hmm. and its treatment. And right. so that group of people comes in a little bit more primed and ready, so to speak, to uh, hear what I have to say and see if I diagnose them and see what their treatment approach is going to be. Right. But um, I also deal with people who de novo uh, may- maybe need my help with regard to uh, connecting mind and body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Can you, before we go forward, can you explain to our audience what chronic pain is and how it's different from other forms of pain? Well, everyone knows a lot about acute pain because we've all stubbed our toe. We've all touched something that was too hot. We've all gotten a a cut or a little laceration at some point in our lives. And and that's acute pain. It's painful. The pain goes away. Um, Even if it's a sprained ankle or a contused knee, you're usually better in a few weeks, maybe a month, sometimes two months. When you begin to drift uh, into that third month and maybe up to six months, uh, doctors begin calling this chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Certainly by year, everyone will use the definition um, chronic pain, but most people start at around three to six months. Mm -hmm. In addition to the the fact that the pain has had a longer duration, there are different characteristics to chronic pain than acute pain. There's different characteristics to dealing with it and treating it effectively. Mm Mm-hmm. And so so the treatment actually changes as opposed to the acute one if it takes on this long duration. Now, is, yeah. now is, the, is the treatment kind of more of the same but over a longer duration just as the pain is or it's uh, qualitatively different? Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people get into sort of um, the trap of doing, which is assuming that somebody who has a problem that hasn't gone away after four or five or six months is the same type of problem in terms of treating it as it would if you saw somebody with the problem for four or five days or four Mm -hmm. or five weeks. And I fault both conventional medicine and alternative medicine for sometimes making no distinction here. Mm. What we're learning both in clinical work, research, and brain imaging studies is that the individual with chronic pain is in a different place with regard to their pain and with regard to potentially getting rid of the pain than in a person with acute pain. In both cases, it's very important to determine the cause of the pain because just because somebody's had pain for six months doesn't mean that it might not be something that could be treated or that needs to be treated. Occasionally, there are even cancers that aren't picked up uh, over the course of three to six months, and then eventually they're diagnosed in one way or another, and hopefully there's a treatment for that particular condition. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to chronic pain, what we're learning about the brain is that the pathways of pain from the body to the brain are in a different part of the brain in chronic pain than they are in acute pain. Mm -hmm. There's a part of the brain called the somatosensory cortex. This would be where sensations are felt in the brain, such as the sensation of uh, lifting up a a book or touching a piece of sandpaper or something like that. That's where acute pain uh, will, will be found, and that's where uh, brain imaging can show increased activity to the brain when a person is in acute pain. Mm -hmm. But as we move to chronic pain, somebody who's had an aching low back for six months or arm pain for a year 
or pelvic pain for a long time, the pain is actually the pain fibers and the areas where the brain lights up under increased uh, blood, blood flow uh, on imaging studies would actually mm-hmm. be more in the amygdala and the, uh, the emotional brain, the, the limbic system mm-hmm. and, the, and the amygdala and the hypothalamus. Right. And it's a different part of the brain. So this mm-hmm. has really given us this exciting research that's been done out of Northwestern and other places has given us the neurophysiological explanation for what we have been finding for years, which is that when you're talking about dealing with chronic pain, you can't just deal with it anymore on the physical or structural side in many cases. You also have to take into account the emotional and the psychological elements of pain. That's really interesting. Um, to, to kind of um, ask you more about the brain imaging, um, is it the case that every patient with chronic pain will show kind of similar patterns of brain activity, or does it kind of vary along that spectrum? Does the pain seem to radiate from the somatosensory area, which is known for acute pain, to the chronic pain areas? Well, the studies on this, of course, you know, do not include incredibly large numbers of subjects, and it's not, it's not currently used in clinical applications. So I would never say that everyone has this type of pattern, mm-hmm. but I feel that the research that's being done uh, in the concept of chronification, the process by which pain, again, goes from the acute, subacute to the, really the chronic condition, uh, is indicative of the fact that there is a change in where the pathways go. I think that there's certainly going to be some people with chronic pain who may look a little bit more like someone with acute pain. There's going to be some people with acute pain who may actually look a little bit more like the people with chronic pain when it comes mm-hmm. to brain imaging. But overall, you can make a distinction, it appears, without knowing how long they've had pain just by the types of uh, imaging that's been Data that discussed. Yeah, the mm-hmm. functional MRI imaging, which is different than structural MRI imaging, which more people are familiar with because they may have had an MRI of their knee right, or which shows or you kind of the anatomy and structures rather than yeah. um, what's Beautiful going three-dimensional on. anatomy, mm-hmm. but doesn't tell you anything about the function of the area, whereas sure. the functional brain imaging shows you how much blood flow or how much glucose or how much other nutrients are being used in a certain part of the brain, tell, therefore tells you what's active and what's resting at the time that sure. it's imaged. Yeah, fMRI. So um, in the clinical aspect now, the clinical side, that seems to correlate well with uh, neuroimaging, um, what, what, is the, what is the range of patients that you see? I mean, it seems like many people might come in with back pain and um, some sort of chronic pain that's lasted over a year. Now, are there variances, like large variances between one patient and another? Well, I would say that every patient is a distinct individual. And so I always uh, you know, treat the patient with the disease rather than treat the disease, so to speak. And uh, that would be a paraphrase, I think, of going as far back as Hippocrates. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the, the evaluation of any patient with chronic pain begins with a good history. Find out what, what happened to them. When did the pain start? What has happened since then? What treatments have they had, et cetera? But I expand that in my practice to also try to determine what was going on in their life at the time that the pain began. And I'm talking now about was there stress? Was there a psychological crisis? Was there major change at work or in their relationships or other situations of that sort? I also look a little bit at personality because in my experience and that of other doctors who have worked in this field, chronic pain and specifically with this model of attention myoneural syndrome, uh, we find that people with chronic pain for whom there's more of emotional connection, often have certain characteristics. We call it a type T personality, T for tension. Mm -hmm. And these individuals are often very hard on themselves, highly responsible, perfectionistic, extremely conscientious. um, And we have a number of other characteristics in that that field. Mm -hmm. Now, those don't sound like terrible things, and I realize they're not. And I certainly have many of those characteristics myself. Mm -hmm. But when, when consolidated together, it produces a little bit more tension, a little more emotional tension, which can sometimes, we believe, be translated into physical symptoms in individuals with this type T personality. Mm-hmm. So we begin with this history mm-hmm. and evaluation. We also look at uh, childhood stressors because many individuals whose pain has gone from acute to chronic have actually turned out to have um, 
more challenging childhood childhoods than individuals who haven't. There's a concept of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, mm-hmm. and some people pay more attention to that. I try to get more of a, a gestalt of their uh, childhood experiences in general. And um, you know, then we move on to um, physical examination, and a careful physical exam of the area of the body that's injured and uh, associated areas or neurological functions is very important. Mm-hmm. We also look for certain tender points in the back that uh, are characteristic of the syndrome, uh, when present, it's it's helpful, but uh, mm-hmm. it's not always present. And they're not the exact same tender points as a condition called fibromyalgia, which is also discussed uh, as a medical diagnosis. Right. And finally, I do a careful review of their imaging. Most of these people have had MRI scans or CAT scans or X-rays or other imaging. Do a careful review of their imaging and lab work mm-hmm. because in every case, we always want to be certain that there isn't a structural or biochemical explanation. Right. So I'm working them up in a sense in two ways. Uh, I'm working them up with the psychosocial and the uh, emotional and the childhood experiences, et cetera, while I'm taking a careful medical history and while I'm also looking for any physical or biochemical explanation that may have been uh, missed or, 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 in fact, that mm-hmm. may not have been that significant, but that they may believe is significant based on something that a medical doctor or a chiropractor or someone else told them. Right. So in your experience, many of these patients, I guess, although maybe not all, have seen another doctor or some other medical professional before for this pain. And that's why they have like brain scans or other sorts of um, scans that they can bring into your right. office. Right. By the time well. somebody has chronic pain, mm-hmm. and I'm talking here six months or more, or even a year or more of pain, mm-hmm. they've almost certainly seen one or more practitioners I of see. both conventional and sometimes alternative uh, medicine. And they've almost certainly had some type of testing. And if they haven't had the testing that I feel is appropriate, obviously uh-huh. I'll order that. But many of them actually come in with uh, quite a lot of scans uh, of different parts of their body that are affected by the pain. And you find that the the healthcare professionals that they've seen before, um, to some degree at least, address the biological aspects, the anatomical, physiological aspects of why they might be having pain. Well, every practitioner sort of does what they're both comfortable, knowledgeable, and trained in. Mm -hmm. So if you go to someone who is a chiropractor, for example, they're going to look at alignment. They're going to look at um, x-rays, perhaps. They're going to look at uh, the positioning of your body. If you go to someone who is an acupuncturist, they're going to evaluate your your chi. They're Mm -hmm. going to uh, probably do acupuncture needling and things like that. If you see an orthopedic surgeon, they're going to get x-rays, possibly an MRI scan. They're going to do the orthopedic exams. Mm-hmm. So people tend to focus on what they know, mm-hmm. and they also tend to focus in treatment on what they're comfortable with, whether it be right. physical therapy, chiropractic adjustment, acupuncture, herbal treatment, et cetera, et cetera. So many of the people with chronic pain that I've seen have had one or more or sometimes multiple treatments from different practitioners Mm -hmm. who each believe that a particular diagnosis was correct. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, I'm seeing at the end point, if if you're talking about the people I see who perhaps have had one, two, three, five years of pain, Mm -hmm. we're seeing the funneled-in group of people who have not succeeded. Right. So those that got better from physical therapy after six months or after three months or one month, those would be considered the successfully treated patients. And they're not going to come to me for chronic pain. They're the same people I'm treating, so to speak, in, in, my, in my, the rest of my practice where someone has a tendonitis of the shoulder or uh, a lumbar disc uh, bulge, and we treat them with medications and physical therapy and injections and things, and they get better. Right. So the issue of chronic pain is the issue of who is not getting better from the treatments that they typically have tried by the point at which they see a doctor who specializes in chronic pain or specializes in a particular approach to pain. Right. Right. So that's a very interesting point. So this group of patients is already has been through a lot of workups, a lot of different medical expertise. They probably tried a variety of things, right? If Many of them have. One thing hasn't worked and they've tried another. In fact, you might say that my greatest successes occur in people who have had a surprisingly large number of treatments from other practitioners and evaluations from other practitioners, including highly qualified practitioners, mm-hmm. and who have not gotten better. Right. So now now you come in, and uh, as we're going to talk about something, I think that, um, that you 
pay close attention to are these things like stressors and early childhood events that you mentioned that may be missed by other physicians. So is it relatively easy to, you know, check off the other aspects and say, you know, those are looking fine? Well, it's, um, it's relatively easy when you're an experienced practitioner to check off those other aspects. I also, mm-hmm. I don't assume that anyone else has done this, but when they've seen a good list of doctors who perhaps I know some of the names or whatever, sure. um, typically they've had an excellent workup. I mean, right. nowadays in modern medicine, you know, patients are often worried, well, the doctor's going to miss something. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the things that are missed now are the kinds of things we're, discuss- we're going to be discussing or starting to discuss in this conversation because with modern blood testing and with modern MRI and other types of imaging, doctors aren't missing things as much anymore. In fact, the argument is made that maybe too many tests are ordered or too many MRI scans are ordered um, in cases where maybe they, they are not really needed. But the issue of what's missed is the issue or the issues that I tend to focus on, broadening the perspective from a purely biomedical model of what's wrong with the person mm-hmm. to a biopsychosocial model where we're looking at the person in, in, in the, uh, the viewpoint of personality, mm-hmm. childhood issues, stressors in their life, uh, crises and events that may have preceded a particular onset of pain or perhaps mm-hmm. made it worse. And then on top of that, when you've had pain for a while, mm-hmm. you start fearing movement. You start becoming, mm-hmm. there's a term for this, kinesiophobia. You know, phobia mm-hmm. means fear of, kinesio means movement. movement. Kinesiophobia is constantly discussed in the medical and physical therapy literature in terms of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. People get afraid of movement. Right, which is unhealthy in its own right. It, it becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. Initially, it makes sense. If something hurts, you don't want to move it because it's going to hurt more. But it turns mm-hmm. out that to get better from a lot of medical conditions, you actually have to move mm-hmm. in order to get better. Right, right, right. I see. So... Do you think it would be possible to kind of go through um, a patient, like a fictitious patient who would come in? Like, could you explain to us what kinds of questions you would ask and what kinds of responses you're looking at? I'll pick up some, pick someone who's fictitious, but it'll be close enough to someone I recently saw, so you'll actually know a true story at the end, although, again, it'll be completely anonymous. Sure, so yeah. uh, confidentiality is assured. Of course. So this was a man in his... Um, early 50s, mm-hmm. and he came to see me seven weeks ago, and he had had what he said was 27 years of back pain. That's a long time. Wow. And now that doesn't mean that the pain was necessarily constant every minute of every day, but this was back pain that had changed the way he lived, changed the amount of exercise he did, changed, uh, you know, he, would, he wouldn't jog, uh, he wouldn't run, he wouldn't do various things that he used to do. Mm-hmm. And he had seen a bunch of different doctors, and they tried different things, and unfortunately it didn't work. And at some point you get a little discouraged, and you sort of just sort of shrink into a smaller world where you're mm-hmm. avoiding things that you think are going to be bad for you, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. when I first saw him, um, I asked him about the pain and the history, and I wanted to really get a sense for what he felt was wrong with him. Because this mm-hmm. is a very important concept. It's not just important what the doctor thinks is wrong with you. It's important what the patient believes is wrong with them. Mm-hmm. This is something I learned years ago in medical school, but it's carried through ever since. What is your conception of what's wrong with you is one way of asking it. There's other ways of saying it, but mm-hmm. you know, what do you think is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. What, have you? What have you been told is wrong with you? Because until you understand that, you can't help somebody to perhaps accept a different diagnosis that would take things, including treatment, in a different direction. So I tried to understand what he felt was wrong with him, and I don't remember all of the details of this fictitious but sort of not fictitious person, but because it was seven weeks ago. But um, mm-hmm. he believed he had a bad back. He believed he had a bad spine and that uh, things couldn't be fixed. It wasn't a surgical case, but it just was one of those things where his spine was bad. Mm-hmm. So therefore, he had to restrict his activities and, and be he a, li- live a limited life, mind. Yeah. lie down a lot, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talked to him about it, you know, I learned a little bit more about his, uh, you know, I have to ask these kind of questions. They're relevant, and it's all private and confidential in the office. You ask a man about his, his marriages, and you ask a man about his children, and you ask a man about his parents, and you want to find out as much as you can quickly, because we don't have that much time, but to, to learn a little bit about the flow of their life and 
where the, some of the difficulties have been, where some of the joys have been, et cetera, and mm-hmm. where they've gotten stymied in one way or another, because everybody's had their frustrations and their other things. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, we ask about uh, certain questions about personality type, and we ask about um, we ask about other stress-related illnesses. Sometimes people who develop chronic pain in their 30s or 40s may have had a condition called irritable bowel syndrome, a benign condition of the colon, which is a functional syndrome. Or they may have had a TMJ, temporal mandibular joint syndrome, a benign condition of the jaw where the muscles are tight and the jaw hurts, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. we try to look for whether there's been other similar types of functional disorders. Because um, those are also things. associated with stress, is they, that right? Yes, very often. And okay. because the association with those other disorders makes it more likely that this disorder is also going to be one of those things. Comorbidity, in a sense? Uh, you could say comorbidity, or you could say an association or increased mm-hmm. uh, predilection toward these types of disorders. Okay. Um, I often find that when I do an examination on um, folks with this condition, this chronic pain condition, that's actually ultimately a benign condition, but very painful and very um, limiting, mm-hmm. that when I ask them to move, they... Not, not you know they don't they don't want to move. They're very afraid to move. There's a hesitance to move, mm-hmm. and I watch the lack of fluidity in them. Some of them move very mechanically, almost like a robot, because mm-hmm. some physical therapist some years ago, whatever, had taught them. Well, this is the way you should move to protect your back, and they kind of move very mechanically, which mm-hmm. you know it can be good for a week or two, but it's not really a good long-term solution to movement because we we need to relax in order to move fluidly, etc. So I proceeded to, uh, you know, take his history and do his examination and review his MRI scans. And I said to him, you know, honestly, your MRI scans aren't perfect, but they don't really look that terrible. I mean, it's not so much more than I would see in anybody else just with, you know, a few decades on the planet, aging, mm-hmm. gravity, this sort of stuff. I'm not really seeing anything here that I feel is, is troublesome or surgical mm-hmm. or that should explain 27 years of back pain. So we talked about the concept that the pain is just sort of stuck in his nervous system, mm-hmm. that the pain pathways have developed, unfortunately, as a result of reinforcement, have developed a uh, thickening, if you will, or a uh, perpetuation, or a um, they become more permanentized mm-hmm. over the course of these 27 years. I said, however, my experience has been that if you're willing to consider this diagnosis and if you're willing to take certain steps, which we'll discuss in a few minutes, that you can break this pattern. Mm-hmm. And he was interested because he had learned a little bit about this before he even saw me, but mm-hmm. he was also skeptical. I mean, can this really work for me? I've had 27 years of back pain. Sure. Um, so he left um, that. He had more questions. Of course, he asked them, and I answered them. And he left with some home materials, a home educational program, which included a journal that he could write in, a guided journal with questions where he could write about his day-to-day emotional experiences, what he was, what was bothering him day-to-day and what was making him angry and upset, and et cetera, et cetera. He could just write about these, answer these questions over the course of 30 days. Uh, it's called a, you know, a journaling or a workbook. Mm-hmm. And he also left with, um, with an, uh, a book that he could read that explained the principles and how to apply it, et cetera, et cetera. So he left, and that was seven weeks ago. He came back in today. And this is a true story that he came back in today, although I haven't told you enough about him that, mm-hmm. again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, address any confidentiality issues. Came back in today, mm-hmm. and he had driven a fairly long distance to see me uh, in Los Angeles, but he came back in today, and he, he, he told me that his pain was completely gone. Really? Now, this doesn't happen every time, so I don't want to uh, mislead the, the audience, but mm-hmm. this is someone who did not see a psychotherapist, did only reading of actually two or three books, because there's a book I've written and a couple of books from my mentor, Dr. Sarno, that he read as well. Mm -hmm. He read two or three books, and he wrote every day in the journal uh, for 30 days, maybe skipped a few days, but eventually got through the 30 days because it had been seven weeks. Mm -hmm. He told me that within a week after seeing me, he decided that he was no longer afraid of moving and that he was going to start by just jogging up the hill in front of his house. And he said he, he said his son, who was about 12, had never seen him jog his entire life. He'd never done it. Mm-hmm. And his son was like shocked to see it. So he jogged up the hill and it was kind of winded because it's a, it was a hilly area, but it didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And then he started to walk briskly every day and sometimes jog and even hit a golf ball. And 
his back didn't hurt. And he, he mm-hmm. just basically told himself that there was nothing structurally wrong with his back and that fear and worry and stress in his life and everything had all come together to sort of lock him up over the years and that he wasn't going to worry about it anymore. And he managed to make this transformation dramatically mm-hmm. well and he came in today and told me, I just want, I came back, I honestly, doctor, I didn't really have to come back because I'm doing so well, but I wanted you to know how well I've done and tell me, to tell me his story of how mm-hmm. he had done it and, and how well he was feeling and how confident he was that he was going to go forward from there. So it was a very, very gratifying Absolutely. patient. Yeah. Um, I said to him, you know, I said, these, when someone comes in with this kind of a story, which, which unfortunately happens from time to time, um, this dramatic a story, this quick a story, yeah. that it's, I said to him, you know, I don't do open heart surgery. I mean, without, other than people maybe who are saving lives with brain surgery or open heart surgery, I mean, you can't really accomplish this type of thing in ordinary medical practice, yet I did it as a result of not injecting or prescribing for him, but mm-hmm. teaching him, educating him, and guiding him through a process of self-exploration mm-hmm. that led him to understand his condition in a different way and this causes some type of, we don't totally understand it yet, but we think we understand, some type of a change in the brain mm-hmm. that releases these neural pathways that have been locked there for 27 years as fear and as pain locked together mm-hmm. for all this time. So it's a very dramatic case and happened to have Sorry. happened today. So I'm, I'm excited to yeah, share with you. Yeah, it's a tremendous story. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, from from this account of it, it sounded like um, you're really harnessing something about how people think about their pain. And is this why you mentioned that people have to have a certain willingness to kind uh, of come in and kind of work with you on this aspect? You're a good interviewer because, yes, because someone who is resistant to the concepts that I'm trying to get them to understand that will lead to this change will typically not do well with this program, at least initially. Someone mm-hmm. who is ready or willing to try something that is different, it's not harmful in any way. It's not, there's no mm-hmm. smoke and mirrors going on. There's no incense being burned in my waiting room. But um, someone who's willing to think differently can, can do this, can, can often accomplish this type of a dramatic change in pain. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about over the years the people who've done this, sometimes desperation is a good place to be in to make this kind of change. Now, that Mm -hmm. desperation is not a very positive emotion or positive feeling to have, but if you've tried Mm -hmm. five or 10 or 15 types of medical treatments, both Mm -hmm. conventional and alternative, and haven't gotten better, you may very well be in that desperate place where you're willing to try something that is different. The other thing is that the person, if you see with this, I only had two visits with this man, 45 minutes the first time and 15 Mm -hmm. minutes the second time. He did most of the work himself. Right. This is about the doctor empowering a patient mm-hmm. to make dramatic changes in their life and in their nervous system, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so not every person is willing to be as active a participant, although that's, of course, what I encourage. Right. Um, the doctor doesn't fix you with this condition of chronic pain and the tension myoneural syndrome. Mm-hmm. The doctor is a guide. He's a teacher. You know, in Latin, doctori means to teach. Mm-hmm. And we really are in this situation, teachers. teachers now, we also have yeah. to examine the patient, do other things that doctors do, et cetera. But mm-hmm. it's not about me. It's about the teaching. It's about a collaborative process. It's about ultimately the patient taking it their own way and making it their own, uh, their mm-hmm. own healing path. I tell people that if you think of healing as a path, you know, I'll take you out onto that path and I'll give you some guidance, but you're going to have to walk on that path yourself as well in order right. to succeed. So th- this is really interesting to me yeah. because it, it reminds me of, um, and this might seem a little bit off tangent, but um, it reminds me of uh, back in high school at the end of it, we had um, this uh, day for the seniors basically, and they hired um, some people to come in and uh, do different uh, things to entertain. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting was a hypnotist who was there. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, all, of course, like totally different profession, right? But something that's that I think a hypnotist also utilizes is the power of words, right? Mm-hmm. To unlock something deep inside how we're thinking about things. And one of the things that the hypnotist was mentioning is that it's very important to take people on who would be kind of 
willing to participate. And of course, in, in this case, it's, you know, willing to participate to go up on stage and doing mm-hmm. something silly. But in the same vein, like if your mind is ready to, you know, think differently, perhaps some of these miraculous recoveries are also possible. Well, it's a good analogy in several ways. You know, a a hypnotist looks for um, a good subject. And so I'm also interested in whether the patient is primed for this ability to respond to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the hypnotist also says, I can't make you do anything you don't want to do. Right. Which I also say to them, you know, if if this is something that you're not interested in doing, meaning reading a book and writing in a journal... Well, this program's not going to work for you. Let's try something else because you're not ready for that. So there are some uh, interesting analogies here. There's also analogies to, um, you know, to psychology in general because the psychologists will talk about stages of readiness of change. And there's mm-hmm. a whole literature on this area of change in psychology, which is that people have to be ready. Like, for example, to quit smoking, there's called pre-contemplation, mm-hmm. contemplation, and then readiness. So in other words, you can get people at different points where they're just, they really haven't thought about it yet, meaning pre-contemplation. Mm-hmm. They're starting to think about quitting smoking, but they're not really ready to do it. Or they're ready to do it. Obviously, you're more likely to succeed with whatever you counsel them in that case. Mm-hmm. So patients are like that as well when it comes to working on chronic pain with this uh, novel approach, which mm-hmm. is that they have to, there's a readiness uh, stage. Right. A- another uh, in just very short uh, story would be that a number of times over the years, I've had patients who said to me, um, you know, Doc, I, I, somebody gave me this book, uh, either, you know, now it could be my book, but years ago it was my mentor's book, and they gave me this book, but they gave it to me a year ago. I looked at it, and it just didn't quite fit me or whatever, mm-hmm. so I put it on my bookshelf, and, you know, it went on with my life, doing different things, trying to get other treatments for their problem, and then I picked it up last, they will say to me, I picked it up last week. And I couldn't put mm-hmm. it down. I just sat down there and I read for two or three hours. I read the entire book. Mm-hmm. And that was, what's different about that? And then I had to call your office to see if I could get an appointment and see if this diagnosis was appropriate for me. Mm-hmm. What was different? I mean, what was different about that person? Something had changed in their willingness or readiness to look at something right. in a different way because the same book was there a year ago. It didn't interest them at that time. And now right. it was the absolutely most fascinating thing they've ever seen. Now, it is fascinating about now, now, do you think, um, going off of something that you mentioned, um, once people are at this stage, say they are, it, whether it's desperation or something else where they're ready for a new approach, do you think there's, you know, this is like a self-selective group in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who have kind of, you know, gotten to the point where they really need to deal with this. Now, do you think for these people multiple solutions would work just ah, because well, they're in that state? That's an interesting question. Now, if multiple solutions worked, are they working by the same mechanism I'm describing or are they working by other mechanisms? Right. Um, what does readiness to change mean? Does readiness to change mean that if you, now if you went to the top physical therapist on the west side of Los Angeles or in Orange County, right. that you would now exercise in a different fashion and your body would heal as well? Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's an interesting question. There's been no research on that at all. And obviously, I'm working at it from one particular perspective. But right. uh, I think that in general, a lot of what doctors do is try to activate healing mechanisms in people. Mm-hmm. I think what we do with this method is we somehow activate a healing mechanism. Now, they used to use the derogatory term placebo to refer to something that was a false treatment or an inert sugar pill that was given to someone back in the days before medicine had effective antibiotics or effective uh, other treatments. And so the doctor would say, here, drink this. It'll make uh-huh. you feel better. And lo right. and behold, about 80% of the people who drank that even though it had nothing in it other than, let's say, sugar water or milk or whatever, they felt better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that occurs on a brain basis, which is that the brain starts telling the body, okay, well, you know what, things are going to be a little bit better. You start feeling a little better. It doesn't change dramatically physiology, but it, it makes people feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, that, re- that relates to the relationship between the healer and the Right. So doctors have been utilizing this to some degree for a long time, I guess. But, no, right. But I would argue that the treatment that we use is not a placebo. Uh, placebos don't tend to last very long, and our treatment often lasts an extremely long time. Uh, but, but it's more of perhaps drawing a, a level back beyond that, which is how does the placebo function? We may have tapped into um, the mechanisms by which you, know, you can get people to use their, their brain and their mind and their emotions to heal from within rather than heal from without. Mm-hmm. 
I often talk about the kind of work that I do is it's kind of a top-down approach to healing the back or the arm or the pelvis or the foot rather than a bottom-up. Bottom-up meaning treat the foot, treat the knee, treat the back, whereas top-down means treat the brain, the mind, and the emotions, and it'll kind of work the other way around. Mm -hmm. And um, I think for chronic pain, the science would seem to support the top-down treatment rather than the bottom-up treatment. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, just science and the research behind this. You mentioned that um, people kind of haven't looked at um, whether or not at the stage where you meet the patients, whether other solutions would work or whether this one, uh, how well it's working. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the research state Well, for TMJ yeah. or TMS? Sorry. T- for the condition we're calling TMS, tension myo neural syndrome, um, I guess we should kind of um, yeah. maybe formally define that one too. Since uh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, John Sarno was the doctor who um, originated thinking about this about uh, 35 uh, or, or so years ago. He was a rehabilitation professor at uh, New York University's Rusk Institute, now retired. And his initial term was the tension myositis syndrome. Uh, tension meaning tension in the body, emotional tension. Myositis meaning muscular, uh, muscular state. Itis often means inflammation, but he wasn't intending to say that. And syndrome meaning something that causes a variety of symptoms. Uh, more recently, we've mm-hmm. moved toward the term tension myoneural, muscles and nerve syndrome. But it doesn't capture all of this because this is really a fascinating psychophysiological disorder relating to the connection between psycho, the mind, and physiological, the body. So any kind of name is kind of a difficult uh, mm. way to explain all of this. Um, right. Dr. Sarno treated tens of thousands of patients, developed a national reputation, and wrote four uh, books, a couple of which were bestsellers. He also treated senators and congressmen and uh, celebrities and, and all of this sort of thing. He taught it to me when I was a medical student. Mm-hmm. I actually had knee pain that wasn't going away. I saw top doctors at NYU, including uh, the New York Yankees team orthopedist, and had a bunch of uh, diagnostic tests and uh, treatments and very strong legs at this point after the treatments, but the pain was still, st- still there. And mm-hmm. I started to worry quite a bit, you know, as uh, taking me away from my hobbies like running and basketball. Walked into John Sarno's office seeking uh, perhaps a new high-tech form of physical therapy, at least for the uh, time when I was in medical school. Mm-hmm. And he asked me a few questions, and he said, 95% of this chronic pain is psychosomatic. What do you think of that? Well, that's, that threw me for a loop. I was not <laughs> expecting to hear that. The term psychosomatic is another way of saying psychophysiological, meaning mind-body, although mm-hmm. it sometimes has the connotation to people of, you know, it's imaginary or it's in your head. I didn't take it that way, but... Some people do, unfortunately, misinterpret that term. So I said to him, well, how do you treat this? And he goes, well, I, I examine people, and then I invite them to a seminar where I teach them about this. He hadn't written any books yet at that point. So mm-hmm. he said, I don't have any time to examine you now, but come to my seminar next Monday night. See what you think. Uh, it's a seminar for patients specifically, not for, for doctors or medical students. But I went mm-hmm. to the seminar, and he laid out this concept of the, the importance of emotions and the brain and the mind, and, you know, again, all in the, the levels at which we had an understanding of at that time. There was no functional MRI imaging yet. What he said made total sense to me, that I was worrying too much about my pain, that I had developed into sort of a cycle of worrying and fear, and that what I needed to do is give it up and start moving on with my life, and then my pain would go away. Hmm. And um, it worked for me. It worked for me without any books. It worked for me without any journaling just changing the way I thought about things as a result of this very convincing presentation. Mm-hmm. Subsequently was examined by him. He confirmed this diagnosis, and uh, I went on to do research in his office. The research study involved calling 175 of his former patients and asking them what their response to treatment had been. And uh, I kept hearing these stories over and over again, like my own, of uh, being invited to an educational seminar and being examined by a doctor, and the pain went away. Uh-huh. And I thought this was a very powerful thing. So I spoke about it with my medical student colleagues and with some of my professors. And in general, the response I got was scoff, scoffing, uh, <laughs> ignoring, not believing, or mm-hmm. not being interested. And mm-hmm. I found this kind of uh, disturbing because this seemed like a very powerful thing that it helped me and it helped 75% or more of these 175 people I called up. Uh, mm-hmm. Dramatic results. So put this a little bit in my back pocket. You know, he used the, uh, the study that we did to... Uh, uh, augment some of his information in his first book, Mind Over Back Pain, and in his second book, uh, uh, Healing Back Pain. Mm-hmm. But I went on with my training, and um, 
eventually came out to the West Coast, uh, continued to be aware of the mind-body approach, et cetera. But uh, eventually when I opened my private practice, he started referring people to me out here because we stayed in touch. Um, mm-hmm. And I started to develop more of the program that, that I currently utilize. Um, back to research, um, some years later, a patient of mine who was very pleased with his treatment and happened to have a little bit more in the way of financial resources said to me, what, what do we need to do, need to do to get this work more widely known? And I said, mm-hmm. we need more research. And so he said, well, I, I can give you a little bit of funding for a few years. So that led to an ability to hire a research assistant and get some data together. And we published a couple of couple of papers, um, including a, an outcome study that was published in a, in a fairly significant alternative uh, medicine journal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized as well that there were a couple of other things about research. Number one, to do it at a very high level is extremely expensive and time-consuming. Mm-hmm. And number two, that you need the help or cooperation of a university or other significantly large institution to do that kind of research, and that generally they weren't interested unless you mm-hmm. either brought a ton of money with you or unless you were doing the kind of research that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And the kind of research that was generally being funded, of course, is by pharmaceutical companies who have a pill to sell or a medication to um, research. And, yeah, that, you know, many of the great advances in medicine are re- as a result of this type of research. But uh, the kind of work that, you know, that I do is also, I think, an advance in medicine. Um, again, I give most of the credit to that to my mentor, John Sarno. But, um, you know, there isn't that sort of funding uh, available. There isn't that infrastructure available to mm-hmm. do research. There's a doctor in Michigan, Howard Schubiner, who's um, publishing some work uh, with fibromyalgia and chronic pain up, up in that area with a, with a doctor there who has some uh, money in grants. Mm-hmm. And um, again, there's been a lot of research, which I referred to extensively in my book, um, by other doctors and other scientists, not directly looking at our treatment program, but rather looking at chronic pain that I think totally supports and provides evidence and background for why our treatment program uh, works. And I mentioned some of that stuff with the functional imaging and the chronification, et cetera, earlier in the, earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. I see. And so is, um, is the nature of um, research, as you were saying, it seems to be that it's very difficult for kind of a new idea or a new way of looking at things to kind of break through the mold, um, whether it be because the the current establishment is the one that's funding for the research and whatnot. Would you would you agree that that's kind of a yes. broader implication? Yes, that's a that's a that's a correct statement. Although it doesn't totally capture everything, um, it definitely captures the fact that science tends to go along in a path and scientific revolutions tend to occur when a particular explanatory model uh, reaches the end of its usefulness and where mm-hmm. evidence no longer continues to support that explanatory model. I, I, I'm speaking now from a classic book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by, um, I think, by Kuhn, K-U-H-N, mm-hmm. um, who spoke about this with regard to the, you know, the theories of how the, uh, you know, the sun was revolving around the earth and then Galileo and Copernicus and all that figured out it was the, uh, the other way around. Um, the model that they had, just no lo- the previous model, just no longer explained things and they were able to break through that. Um, with regard to the work that I do, um, it, I don't think it should be ignored because it's helped so many tens or hundreds of thousands of people, but it's not well known in the medical field. It hasn't mm-hmm. been really well researched um, to the extent that perhaps other approaches have been. The research mm-hmm. that we've done shows dramatic, excellent results. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd put that those, those studies against anyone. But again, the, the really high-level research, the powerful, large, double-blind control study kind of things, which are also mm-hmm. harder to do on a psychological intervention than they are on a yellow pill versus a yellow placebo pill, mm-hmm. as, as done in pharmaceutical research. It's much harder to do the kind of research that I'm talking about. But it's doable um, in, the right, in the right place with the right infrastructure and the right funding mm-hmm. is, not being, is not being supported and um, has very little, very little um, financial back, backing. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that you know, doctors tend to either be practicing doctors or research doctors. Um, mm-hmm. Isn't it Unfortunately, a tremendous amount of overlap between the two. So when practicing doctors find out something that's really a powerful approach, 
Um, it's sometimes hard to get research doctors really excited about it because they have other things they're doing that are hmm. getting them their degrees and their their grants and all that I kind see. of stuff. So, there so there's, a lot of, paths, there's a lot yeah. of structural mechanisms in hmm. the medical profession, the uh, structure of research funding, et cetera, that make it hard for new approaches, that, especially those that are not pharmaceutical, to mm-hmm. be effectively evaluated. Are there any lessons to be learned from cognitive behavioral therapy or some of these other things that have kind of broken through the mold and currently well, that, are used? That's a very good question. You're an excellent interviewer, and I'm sure one. I'm sure a very good medical student. <laughs> um, I think cognitive behavioral, we, I was discussing this with several people recently, and this was being emailed around in a group, is let's look at cognitive behavioral therapy, they said, and let's try to figure out how they have uh, effectively demonstrated some of their approaches as um, as being efficacious, and let's try to do some of that same type of work ourselves, and that was actually discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you get back to the issue of organization, funding, et cetera, but no, that is definitely a model that could be pursued in this uh, in this realm. It certainly seems like um, some of the conditions are appropriate, at least for more investigation. I mean, the fact that there are a, you know, a sizable number of chronic pain patients who don't respond to traditional therapy means there's a need. And then I think... I would say that from the perspective of a medical student, the idea is that the mind has, you know, profound implications on how the body functions is an idea that's taught more and more in the curriculum and seems to be kind of the direction where people are starting to accept and think maybe. So it seems like there might be more room for this kind of, uh, at least looking into this kind of uh, intervention, this kind of therapy as to see what kind of efficacious effects it has. I try to remain hopeful. It's just that it has been a long haul in terms of uh, you know getting so the establishment, so to speak, um, interested in all in this. And mm-hmm. I've made my own efforts in terms of reaching out to hospitals, institutions, universities, uh, HMOs, et cetera, uh, in various places where I thought it would be an appropriate place to test some of this. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the responses are not always that uh, that positive. Now, right. as I look at the general medical approach to chronic pain, I see a new phenomenon recently sneaking in called functional restoration. Hmm. And I had a friend who does this kind of work, a colleague from Seattle, who was at a conference uh, recently on functional restoration. And he shared with me some comments, which I unfortunately don't have right now, so it would be hard for me to quote it, but I might paraphrase mm-hmm. them at some point. Mm-hmm. And what he said is that functional restoration includes a lot of the things that we believe in. It includes exercise. It includes psychology. It includes um, group meetings and classes and all kinds of things, trying to take people who have really limited themselves because of chronic pain and get them to a better place where they can be more functional uh, members of society or go back to work or whatever the goals are. Mm-hmm. The difference is that they don't focus to the same degree as we do on getting that thought process to change as the essential uh, decisive element of the cure, so to speak. They don't mm-hmm. focus as much on the emotional underpinnings of the pain problem. They focus more on um, kind of a broad swath, swath of, uh, of, mm-hmm. of treatment approaches that together help people to get a little bit better. They mm-hmm. are a little more expensive because there's so many things going on, but um, they don't really get to the essence of it. So he felt like it was, it's a shame that we couldn't sort of combine forces, or, or so to speak, mm-hmm. or get our element um, more widely known and accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's another interesting thing, which is of the physicians and psychologists doing this work around the country mm-hmm. and in some other countries, um, many of them have had their own personal experience with uh, recovering from a health condition as a result of this. Like I mentioned, my knee problem in medical right. school. And when you've had that profound an experience yourself, it's so much easier to teach it to someone else than it is if you just learn it secondhand mm. or if you just see it. Now, I'm just curious. There was a, a medical assistant who's with me today in the office, who interviewed the man who had the 27 years of pain and recovered. Uh-huh. She took the preliminary history before I saw him in the office. She hopes to go to, I think, PA school or medical school in a year or two. It'd be interesting to see if just having that experience secondhand, being in my office with me and seeing that, if that maybe leads her down the line to being more open to or more interested in utilizing these techniques uh, whatever kind of clinical work that she does. 
Hmm. But um, it's obviously a limited field if, the only, if, if many of the people who go into it and are some of the leading practitioners have had their own personal experience because it limits the number of people who can um, you know, become the, the, the core certainly. practitioners. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a criterion, but it certainly is no, I've noticed that many of the people who are in the field uh, have had some type of success with this method mm-hmm, themselves. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like many people who do come to medical school have chosen the profession due to some sort of personal experience with illness or death or something in the family or personally. And so it it only makes sense that that translates also into kind of what illness that you particularly yeah. focus in on. That's a good insight. I mean, some people go into cardiologists, had a relative who had heart issues, and they, you know, or they go into oncology, right. cancer care, because they had a sister or a sibling. or yeah. uh, Not necessarily a rule, but maybe no, a you know, not, trend. Or, not, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so maybe we... Uh, thank you so much for spending so much time. I thought maybe I could end with um, uh, maybe one last topic, which would be you mentioned how there is kind of a system there's a lot of system like there's a large system at play when you try to treat patients in one way or another and the system whether it's insurance or just kind of what the current medical vogue is um, tends to think in a particular way or tends to prioritize or fund a particular way of uh, treating patients Mm -hmm. Now, would you say that this this way is kind of more inclined towards fixes that are immediate and um, like a one-stop solution? Because it seems like that's one of the critical differences, right? I, you mentioned the patient who came in after 27 years and had a miraculous recovery, but I imagine many of your other patients, it's a more um, drawn-out um uh, therapeutic experience. It's often a little more uh, drawn out in terms of uh, either the amount of time Mm -hmm. or the amount of effort, although I'm not saying he didn't put effort. He did put effort every day into into making progress with this. Um, Our our society tends to be very focused on quick solutions. Um, Everything's rush, rush, fast food. People often, this is not always true on the west side of LA or Newport Beach or Malibu, but um, in general, our society people would prefer to take a pill to, you know, kill the pain or right. take a pill to solve a problem than they, than they might, you know, write in a workbook for seven days and, uh, and solve the problem that way. So there is a, there is a quick fix type of uh, thinking. The biomedical model has been so incredibly successful for the treatment of acute disease. I mean, there's nothing better on the planet when it comes to uh, trauma, mm-hmm. gunshot wounds, uh, car accidents, um, battlefield injuries, et cetera. I mean, the biomedical model is incredibly effective in getting these people who would have died 20 or 30 or 50 years ago uh, to not only live but to live a normal life subsequent to the trauma that they experience. That sometimes doctors get so wrapped up in that they don't realize that that methodology may not be the same, may not be the most appropriate approach for chronic pain. So although there are injections and epidurals and nerve blocks and pain medications that can be used for chronic pain, we're learning that they are not always the most effective way to ultimately uh, lead a person to have a healthy, happy, functional uh, existence. And so I remain hopeful Mm -hmm. that people will become more open to that. And I think you're right that there is more scientific awareness and understanding of the mind-body link and is being taught a little bit more in the medical school level, et cetera. But it takes a, it takes a while for a uh, scientific revolution, if, it, if, you, if you will, or for new ideas to penetrate mm-hmm, and to be, uh, to be corroborated at a sufficient level. And then for people who are trained in that approach to eventually work their way up to become the chairman of the department, et cetera, because people are, people are just by nature more comfortable with the approaches that they were brought grown, brought up, up on with, and yeah. and gone through the training with and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Schechter, for a very insightful conversation. Would you like to end with um, telling people how they could find out more about your practice and if they want to read more about your work? Sure. Um, I just want to say thank you as well for having me on the show and uh, for asking uh, excellent questions. 
Um, I do appreciate the opportunity to just mention my website, uh, www.mindbodymedicine.com, which has um, information on the subject. Uh, there are podcasts that you can listen to at no charge. Uh, they also are informative. Those will be other interviews. I'll probably put yours on uh, one day when you give me the, oh, of the, the, the link or whatever mm-hmm. to your show. Um, I wrote a book uh, about a year and a half ago called Think Away Your Pain. Your brain is the solution to your pain, and it's available on Amazon, Kindle, Nook, iTunes, etc. And uh, I feel like it brings together um, the most uh, recent uh, scientific evidence along with the clinical approach and a lot of practical information on treatment. Um, and then, you know, there's other materials that are linked to on my website. Uh, SchechterMD.com is, is my other website that talks about my practice in West Los Angeles and tells you how to find me, et cetera. So in any event, um, enjoyed uh, the opportunity to speak about the subject with you, and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps you'll have me back on the show in the future to talk about something else. Oh, absolutely. It would be a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Pills. This is DJ Broca at KUCI 88.9. Join us next time as we take on another subject in medicine. Thank you.